Hi, welcome to a new episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Luca Rocchini. Today, together with my colleague, filmmaker Colm O'Dwyer, I'm going to have a chat with Richard McConian, who lives here in London. Richard is an award-winning Armenian-British composer that works across concert music, opera, theatre, film and performance art. His music investigates his dual heritage, blending the rich Armenian folk and liturgical tradition with a contemporary and British sensibility. Richard is also a film director and plays and produces music with various bands in London. Hi Richard, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, I'm good. How are you doing, Luca? I'm all right, I'm all right. <laughs> Recording away. <laughs> yeah. So, Richard, how did you become a musician? What's the story? Um, well, I'll just be really honest and, and, and to the point, I guess, is, is that I'm kind of, I'm, I'm 29 years old and I've basically been doing this every day since I was about... I'd say it started seriously when I was about 14, 13. That's when the passion became something that I realized was, oh, I could do this every day and I could maybe, maybe this is a life. Before that, music was a kind of dream or a fantasy or a, a thing that I knew existed in movies and on music record players and, and on my piano, but I didn't know it was a way of living. But from the age of about 14 or 15, I kind of got obsessed and more or less every day would be working on something and that doesn't mean i was working all day that just means maybe i played get, played some piano for five minutes one day but more or less every day pretty much from that point on um yeah and and, and, and then what happened after that well i had a pretty tumultuous relationship with the piano um <laughs> so my my dad wanted me to be a concert pianist, but as we were growing up, our financial situation was very up and down. And when I say up and down, I mean as up and down as it could be. I mean, when that, when it was up, it was, you know, we were living a fairly good middle-class life. I was able to have piano lessons. We were living in Muswell Hill. And then when it was down, we were living in, you know, a friend's house and we had zero money. Um, and that was very much because of the nature of my father's freelance work, which was kind of all or nothing. And uh, and what what did your father do? He essentially, at that time, he was working as a TV broadcaster, uh, TV director, and working in live events. But he also was a musician. So because he was a musician, he was able to cover classical music, live classical music, and uh, popular music. He he'd do the live TV direction and and sort of arrange the whole thing um so so yeah so he was doing that but he was very much freelance and um i guess things were just very up and down um uh so <clears throat> so yeah and then and then w when i was sort of going in secondary school the school i went to was not a particularly you know, it wasn't like a... I had a brilliant music teacher. My music teacher was wonderful. But it wasn't a particularly 
brilliant school. <laughs> it was, you know, your your very, you know, middle of the road, perhaps less so than middle of the road type of school. And I was, I did some piano lessons and then stopped and then piano lessons and then stopped and etc. And then I picked up the drums and then the guitar and then I got into rock music. And then um, several years went by. I was interested in film. I was studying, I did a, beat, a diploma in filmmaking at that time. And then I went away to the Middle East to try and make a, a documentary, which I, I did make. When I came back, started working in a recording studio and then went into classical music. That was when I made the decision to go into classical music. And that was when I was 21. So obviously most people would go to study classical music a lot earlier than that. But it was my father's, um, my father was also a conductor, but uh, he was in and out of that as well. So, so I was exposed to classical music when I was a kid and then, but it wasn't necessarily shoved down my throat or anything, but I came to it in my yeah early twenties, late teens. I heard a few pieces of music that kind of, I essentially changed my life. Um, uh, Foray's Requiem was something that I couldn't stop listening to. Um, I got into Mahler a lot. Um, and yeah, and I think I saw a performance of Mahler's Seventh Symphony. Um, and then that blew me away. I thought, wow, if a human being is, is capable of doing this, I want to have a go. And that began the journey of essentially what is actually six years of study because I started, I did one year at London College of Music, then changed to go to Guildhall because it was my ambition to go to Guildhall, but I didn't get in first year. And then I reapplied after I'd already got into this London College of Music. London College of Music was brilliant, wonderful tutors, but I just had this obsession to go to Guildhall. And then the second time I applied, I got in, did a four-year undergrad, took a year out, did a one-year uh, MA in opera. So that was essentially, when you add it all together, it's six years. So yeah, and yeah, so 21 plus six. Yeah, 28, 27, something like that, yeah. Yeah, I don't think you're alone in that. I think I spent about the same. And uh, it's 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 scary when you add up all those years. Exactly, yeah. But I think, you know, when talking about the, the journey, I think it's really important just to be honest and to be, to be straightforward and be like, this took a really long time and oh, I'm yeah. not even anywhere close to where I think it's this, probably the same for all of us that we, you don't, you don't do it because you, uh, want to get the, the driving force is not success or or fame or money um because that that thing money certainly doesn't exist in in our industry maybe bits and bobs but the driving thing is to make great work to make amazing work and you just that's what you want to do so you know that you haven't made your best work yet and so you always make more yeah you, very you, much you, yeah go ahead Colin. i was just gonna say it, it it's very much like a like a like a sickness like an addiction or something because it's if you look at it objectively uh probably would have been easier for for us to try and be a lawyer or to be a school teacher obviously but you know yeah yeah did you say sickness or an illness is that what you said yeah 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 that's definitely I, i i actually do think of it like that sometimes and um uh, sometimes you wish you didn't have it in a way, even though even though we are so blessed and lucky to be able to pursue what we want and, and 
to have had the chance and opportunity, sometimes you think, fuck, I wish I just didn't have this, you know? But in fairness, you know, like, uh, uh, always, my, like myself, like I always been pushed towards being creative. So I need something to, to, to liberate this kind of creativity. It doesn't, didn't really matter at the end of the day if it was filmmaking or music or you know i need to express myself and that's that's i think the pr the core of the problem because i had you know my previous life as i say like before like you know i i i tried to be kind of nine to five uh and and it didn't work for me so it's like you i i had to i'm one of the first of those people that need to have to have their obsession Mm. and uh, can't escape <laughs> yeah and when you say it was pushed you were encouraged was that by your parents or no not at all not no. at all either no 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 it's just it's just something inside you know mm. my case that uh, is nobody's influence and you know even with the other friends and people that I was maybe playing music together at the time uh, and then they were they are still way more talented than me on music, <laughs> but they didn't really feel like they have to do that all the time. They're, they're happy to keep it as a hobby, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, and for what happened after you finish college? Um, well, during my studies, I made, I made a short with you, Luca. <laughs> we, oh, yeah. we made a short and, and I'd, I'd obviously done some stuff before and, and made a documentary and made but that was kind of different for me because it was a kind of elevated uh, I suppose it was it was my biggest uh, attempt at a kind of big piece of fiction on screen and and I'd always had this passion in film and I'd always wanted to well, I, I'd written music for a few films, both while I was studying and after, to my detriment. One of them was a, <laughs> was a project that I absolutely, I mean, I say to my detriment in, in, in jest, because obviously I, I, I loved it, but it's, it's a huge amount of work and commitment. And um, being part of the film making process, you realize that it's a really complex one, especially when you're working on a feature. So this, this one feature film I worked on called If It Be Love, which was a, an indie indie feature film. Um, it took a year to 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 do because the film was being edited still, and I was still writing the music. And then the cues would go and come and come and go, and we were just endlessly working on this thing. And I enjoyed it, and I didn't regret working on it for a year. But um, are you in the same process now, or you wait for a, a, a final edit? I think I'd I'd love to be in that process to be honest, um, because I'm interested in filmmaking. So I mean, I, I I'd like a director to come and say, "Hey, we're still shooting," or "Hey, here's a script. We haven't shot it yet," and uh, try and write. Um, so so yeah, so I got interested in working for film, and then I worked for a company called Soundtree for a while, and Soundtree wrote a lot of uh, spec music for ads, and also they supervised music for films, probably their most well-known one they did recently was Under the Skin. They were working with Mika Levi, the composer, uh, to get that score across the line. And yeah, I was working with them as a composer and um, 
as an assistant to, to Peter Rayburn, the senior composer. But I actually left uh, quite soon, I suppose. I, I, didn't, I don't think I even lasted a year. I think it was about nine months. But and I left. Do you like left, that experience? Uh, I think it was the nine to fiveness that didn't work for me. But you learned something. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Yeah. You yeah, learned yeah. that you didn't like nine to five, or <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Um, I learned a lot of technical things about scoring music for picture, um, but I think I learned that I, I, I guess when it comes to creative stuff, you have to figure out if you're happy to work for someone or whether you want to work for yourself. And I actually remember when. Peter was really honest with me in the first interview and he said you got to know if you're if you're if if you're a composer working in film composition right which is a very specific thing so let's say like the Hans Zimmer school the Hans Zimmer style is you work with a team most of those composers composers work in teams and they're able to produce a lot of work pretty fast to crazy deadlines then you get the like lone wolf composers um and Who, who, who would that be out of curiosity? That sounds like Clint Mansell or something. Yeah. Uh, Is someone like uh, Morricone a lot? A long Morricone, people. yeah, more old school. Uh, also a, a British composer called Gary Urshan, who did the score for um, uh, Mr. Turner. Um, so he he's much more of a solo guy, you know. Who doesn't probably bring in as much, obviously not as much money as, as handsome about? I mean, that's not really what we're talking about. We're just talking about different styles of doing it. And um, and he said to me, "You have to know which one." And I said, "Hey, you know what? I'm I'm really happy to work in a team. I want to work in a team." And then actually, after going through that process, no one's fault. But I realized actually, I think I work better by myself. Um, and that was the journey there. Why do you think that is? I mean, I, I I often meditate on the creative process and I often feel like it's easier to maybe literally in some cases bang your head against a wall in your office, in your bedroom alone, you know, talk to yourself, go through this like crazy mania sometimes in order to like give birth to, to anything perhaps. And I wonder if that's, um, if, if, if that's hampered, if you found that was hampered uh in 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 a, in a group uh, dynamic mm. yeah that's a really interesting question i guess you can only really be truly 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 honest and brutal with yourself in a way when it comes to creative stuff you can say this is this is shit but if if you're with someone else you really it's hard to say that to someone's face <laughs> because there's there's all that interpersonal stuff right you can't say i don't like this i don't think it works unless um, you're italian right unless you're italian <laughs> maybe we should all just you know be be more italian it's true i mean maybe it's this stupid bit british thing maybe uh, maybe there's a part of that maybe no, it's, no, it's, it's a good it's a good it's good kind of have you know a degree of both here it's, it's, i i feel we are yeah. very often so Yeah, because then, then you just get known, especially if you're just starting off, then you just get known for being a dick, being yeah. like that guy, you know. And uh, um, Whereas with yourself, you know, if you're working through something, you can you can just be really honest and bang your head against the wall. Um, and it's very hard when you're on your own journey and you don't know what your own 
tastes are really you don't know what your own stylistic traits are you're unaware of them because they're just you and you take them for granted but that is the thing that makes you 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 know and so if you're not aware of that coming into a space with where other people have their own tastes it can be really hard to know why something's not working for you because you might be attempting to do something completely different innately um and they might also be trying to do something different. What, I, To be honest with you, what I found was the problem there was that um, most of the time the job was to just write the music, was to just write some music that works, but I was never interested in writing music that worked. I was always interested in writing music that somehow jarred against the picture or somehow caused some problems or tensions with, with, with the images. That was always, I couldn't help it, but it was just naturally I started gravitating. Those ideas interested me and then I'd spend the next four or five hours on ideas that were essentially weird ideas. And when you're working in a commercial environment, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Idiosyncratic yeah, behavior doesn't go down well, I suppose. <laughs> I guess not. And I didn't even know it was that. Yeah. I can't personally, I kind of like as well to be forced commercially sometimes to to explore something that it just kind of looked put my skills into uh, a kind of message that it, it's easy to be catched as well. And I think that kind of process can also improve your own process uh, of making something that can jar and you kind of know what kind of level you can kind of kind of play around, you know. Definitely, definitely. The, the, you have to you have to take your your work seriously, and and I think it's important to think of your skill, whatever it is, whether whether you're a cinematographer, or a writer, or a musician. You have to think of it as a craft that is useful, and there's a certain crafts craftsmanship. And if someone asks you to make a chair, you should be able to make a chair. You know. So if someone comes to you with a commercial project and you should be able to do that, you should understand your craft in that way. Yeah, for sure. Doing commercial work does help you uh, refine that, whatever you want to call it, um, that craftsmanship, I suppose, yeah. It's also the art maybe of, of, of synthesizing, kind of like, you know, to, to make something brief and sh sometimes Maybe we get lost too long on something that we can just, it would work better to be direct, you know, on crazy choices in general. Yeah, I think, I think for me, we all have a different taste, but the best work, and I'm not talking in any specific genre here or any medium either, but the best work in general is the work that's able to do exactly what you're talking about there, which is... <clears throat> You can see all the craftsmanship, you can see the directness, and it has a perfect balance of being um, uh, suggestive and, and original, but also highly kind of functional and uh, really like nice. <laughs> it, actually, right now I'm thinking of Kubrick for some reason. Kubrick's films make me think of that because they're brilliant storytelling. You don't even hear the voice of the director sometimes. You know, you think of films like Barry Lyndon and it's like just beautiful and you're just there with the characters. But then you're like, whoa, this is really deep and philosophical, you know. 
Mm. Any work of art, I suppose, that, you, that you're able to enjoy on an absolute superficial level without engaging that artist part of your brain, like say, let's, uh, I suppose Warhol and to some degree, you could say, or a Turner painting, right? I mean, for very different reasons, obviously, or uh, Clint Eastwood in his own way, I guess, in the same way as Kubrick counterintuitively. You can enjoy it on a superficial level and, it's, and admire it. I mean, I, I can certainly, but you can delve into it deeper. And 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 you can you can you can sit and enjoy it for yeah all art that exists on multiple levels is is, is in just super satisfying I guess is what I'm saying yeah yeah um, but it's that's that's the very hard thing to get right and takes yeah a life a lifetime really mm, it's like it's like that um, that analogy if you want to write like poetry like Bukowski. You need to know how to do. You, you need to know the nuts and bolts. You need to know Wordsworth and classical structure, and the same would apply, I imagine, to music. Um, to be loose and free, and to express yourself, you also, yeah. I have to say, to... Um, I rarely feel loose and free <laughs> when it comes to composing. Um, there are moments. There are very brief moments, but most of the time, it's a real struggle. Yeah. Uh, which means that it's probably not for the listener. I think that's like a trade-off, probably to some degree. It might be challenging and 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 interesting. Is 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 what I would say. I think you have to go through that pain, perhaps. Unfortunately, sorry. Oh, you mean you mean um, when when I said uh, it's a real struggle, I was saying it's a struggle to make it. Yes, yes. And then you were saying, sorry, I think I misunderstood you. Oh, I was I was just saying that I think then for the you go through that struggle and that pain but the viewer is able to enjoy it and engage with it in in a much uh, more pleasant way i hope so yeah yeah <laughs> um i guess it's nice to go talk about london a little um a simple question with a simple with without a simple answer how do you find working in london i mean what's it like being here for you um, well, I was I was born in North London and then lived in the Middle East for a while, then came back to Hertfordshire, now back in London. Been in London for a long time now, uh, since, well, at least 10 years now living here. Um, there was a time about four years ago where London was really great. I don't know what happened. I have a theory, and I say this to everyone, <laughs> that it when they stopped the late license when they stopped the late when they took the late license away it killed this city you know because bars used to be open until 3 4 a.m and even around here in east london brick lane and uh, shoreditch it was buzzing and you'd meet interesting people and the streets were alive full of all kind of people then the late license came in um and you can see that I judge a city mainly by its 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 nightlife and its bars. But it kind of, I mean, that's what a city has to offer, I think. Um, if So late license comes in, everywhere's closed at 11. And that's it. Now it's all this fast turnaround thing. And I, I really think the city's lost its, um, its charm that it used to have about five years ago um, and more. But I was too young to, to, to see that. But... Um, 
but yeah, I, I think it's lost its charm and actually I'm looking really to, to maybe move out of London eventually. That's very interesting. I mean, I find it, I've been here three years, but I mean, I started visiting 15 plus years ago to some degree and I'm inclined to agree with what you're, you're, you're saying. I mean, the city itself is, has been just hollowed out. I mean, we're turning, it's becoming a place where people invest in property and don't necessarily live there or just businesses. It, Covent Garden, Soho, around there, even parts of East London that has a bit more life in it are dead after a certain hour. I find it very yeah, de- depressing even, sometimes. Even the, the supposedly, you know, cultural hotspots like Hackney Wick. I mean, Hackney Wick was interesting again five years ago when it was full of artists living there in these in these places and turned into studios and but that no one knew about it then, you know. Um so you're right, even those places like, you know, so called Hackney Wick, I mean, it's it's now it's filled with all these flats and it just seems so functional. As you say, everything stops at eleven and everyone goes home and there's no more poetry in this city, I feel. It's not inspiring to me anymore. Um which is really sad because I think once that goes, it's very hard to bring that back. Mm-hmm. And um, so, is your so you have an Armenian background? So that's where you say you lived, and as well. No, so my father's Armenian, um, and when we were in the Middle East, we weren't actually in Armenia. We were in Oman, which is in the Gulf. Um, we were essentially there because my father was working for the Sultanate doing his anniversary show. There, there was a show going on because essentially my dad was a show guy, right? He was did started out in the West End, so he did all kinds of bits and bobs. But we went there um, to... Uh, he was filming and, and broadcasting and doing coverage for the, for the show, but the show was a very big thing and lasted about a year with our time there. And then, um, and then we came back, and then we have a we have a connection to Lebanon as well, because that's where my father was actually born, and most of my family, Armenian family, live in Beirut. So I've never actually been to Armenia. Um, so it's purely diaspora Armenian. You have a lot of Western Armenians that have uh, their homes they consider to be other places. In this case, um, Beirut. And then on my mum's side, she's uh, essentially her, her father's Ukrainian and her mother's Scottish. So, kind of, yeah. It's a good mix. It's very bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's London, right? You know, I guess so, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. I envy you a little bit, guys, in fairness. You know, I mean, well, that is, that, that is the beautiful thing still that, that about London is um, that is the one thing that I'd say that London still has which is you go to any other city and we're talking, you know, even you go to the most multicultural cities you can think of, New York even, or, and, and they, there's not as much of a mix. Um, or if there, there is a mix, but the, uh, the people still live in, in fairly separate neighborhoods. Um, so you have the, the Latin Americans there, you'll have the African Americans there, you have, you know, it, and, and, you know, even, even like second generation African Americans live there. 
but black Americans live there, you know, and it's really street by street. There is a bit of that here in London, but at the same time, it's much more, much more mixed up. And that was one thing that I really loved about London uh, and still do is I can go out and, well, now I can't, but I could go out to a bar or go to a club and I could speak to anyone from anywhere, you know, and I enjoyed that. Yeah, I love the surprise of walking around and, you know, trying to guess what heritage people have in the street. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a thing that I, that I love, you know, to have kind of multiple um, people from multiple places together. I think make something that makes very rich, you know, especially coming from Italy where we don't, uh, Italians don't mix much. Um, Probably it's also the language, you know, helps the English uh, and the fact is London, you know, for centuries, um, blah, blah, blah. But um, I, I, I really like it. I really felt, you know, myself that I, I really like to have a place like this where I can be surprised every time I go out. Mm. You know, maybe the love of street photography as well. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is something interesting. But. Totally. Um, yeah. It's unique in that way. Just uh, another thing I want to pick it up from um, from after studying music and working commercially. Um, the, what you stud you studying films as well um, as director as well at the National Film and Television School, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you also been playing music and producing music. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. So that's so. I mean, when. Before studying classical music, uh, I was always m making electronic music on my laptop. So working with MIDI and just doing what you can. And um, I was also in bands. And then eventually, <clears throat> yeah, I'm, eventually I got interested in producing uh, for artists in, in in a more traditional way, in the way that a producer might work, like um, like Rick Rubin, for example, like someone who doesn't necessarily, you know, make the beats or make, but will facilitate the creative process and will do whatever's necessary to get the artist to perform, uh, to 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 deliver the best um, the best they can. So, so yeah, so I mean that 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 went across from working to, with artists to um, uh, Jordan Rakai, for example, or Holiday Oscar, some uh, kind of fairly indie underground artists like Chen Ressa and uh, Desta French, all these people I worked with um, making stuff in the studio. And so that was alongside my classical music, but they were never connected. So when I was, at, when I was studying, I was, I'd be sneaking off to the studio on weekends or sometimes even the week, sometimes not being at class because I had a session um, with an artist. And then my own stuff, I'd, I'd also be experimenting by myself in the studio. I've got tons of solo music that I've never released because I've just been working on it for a long time. And that's very much in the, in the studio setting. So we're talking songwriting, you know, guitars, drums, bass, voice. Uh, pretty straight down the middle. In a way, this is what we were talking, it comes back to what we were talking about before, about having, wanting your work to have an appeal or having a commercial appeal or a broader appeal than something that's very uh, niche or specialized. I was always, always interested in what the broader, and still am, what the broad majority audience are into. 
that's always been um, something I could never get away with, uh, get away, <laughs> get away from. Um, so, so that's that's always been something going along, and and it's been hard actually and confusing to to be both in the classical music world and also the more commercial music world, I suppose. You can kind of hear uh, the influence of both the worlds and your soundtracks as well. Like kind of, it's kind of liberating for me, you know. <laughs> oh, that's that's <laughs> so nice that. to hear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've always wanted to bring the two together more, more and more. I mean, the only time that I was able to do that in a really, I feel, explicit way was an an EP that I did with an artist called Jordan Rakai called uh, Pursuit, and we released it under a name called Qualia. And the project, the idea was, was that he's he's a pretty big soul singer. The idea was, was that you know we'd write songs together, and then I'd write these string arrangements. But the string arrangements were for string quartet. It would have this very classical sound, and we did. We put it out. We released it, and then one of the songs got uh, put onto Spotify's "The Most Beautiful Songs in the World" playlist, which is like a very well listened to pl playlist. And um, you know we didn't put any money behind press or anything, and and it did pretty well. And that was the only time that I've managed to put classical music at the forefront of something that is also commercial. Even then, it's not really pop music, but people might call it quite left wing. But for me, it's still commercial music. Um, in that, it's it's made for a broad, for wide audience. Um, so yeah, so that's really nice to hear you say, Luca, that 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 it's refreshing for you because. I've always loved the two worlds, you know. I've I've always easily jumped from, you know, listening to Prince to listening to like Lutoslawski like in the same day. And I th I think actually there are a lot of composers today that are like that that are like that because we've just we've grown up with all this stuff around us. And I th I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of other composers that find it hard to bring those two worlds together because when you studied pop music is like I call it pop music but you know, just, just all music that isn't classical music. <laughs> it's like stuff that doesn't get talking about, you know, it doesn't get spoken about seriously with the same seriousness. Sometimes it gets talking about, of course, but I always found that really bizarre. Which it's very strange when you consider that a lot of musicians, including me and Luca's favorite band are up there, like bands like Sonic Youth just use a common touchstone, like have been trying to do things and actually trying to meaningfully express them themselves in abstract ways for, for years. Like there's an amazing amount of pro progressiveness in um, what is to some degree pop music. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Sonic Youth had a big influence on uh, James Tenney, who is a very big Canadian composer. Um, Sonic Youth's um, sound walls and their use of uh, walls of sound was really connected to, to what James Tenney was doing, who was a kind of spectralist composer who was also using these walls of sound. And he was explicitly referencing them and talking about them. So, I mean, in a way, when it comes to composers, they know. It's just, I'm, I'm very, at the moment, I'm going through this anti-university <laughs> phase obviously don't bite from the hand that feeds you know amazing amazing tutors and stuff but i think there is something dangerous going on where things are segregated and separated into categories and you speak to any composer and they'll tell you oh yeah i mean i love bob dylan and 
but for some reason in the curriculum it's not there you know it's like this secret dirty secret you know we all you know we all love sonic youth but we couldn't analyze it seriously from a technical analysis point of view that would never happen yeah so what are your other dirty secrets what other art in general not just music are you consuming at the moment or later? at the moment i'm i mean i went through a phase of being very interested in painting um but that's that's fallen to the background now N now i'm just um watching tons and tons of movies um so i'm watching like two movies a day maybe a day i watched uh, wings of desire yesterday and i'm still partially traumatized by how immense that movie is it took me a while to get around to it um now i watched some david cronenberg the brood which is a very strange disturbing horror film so i'm always fascinated by how filmmakers use music because for me it's a domain that's really free for music because it's not limited by genre the film domain allows composers to be to do all these things that we're talking about now which is to be slithery snakes and to to be in multiple genres at once um angelo baldamenti for example in in uh you know david lynch's uh collaborator he often moves very much from you know 80s synth washed out synth sounds to quite suddenly serious string like underscoring or you know serious arrangements that you don't even notice notice it. it's suddenly not tongue-in-cheek but it's suddenly really you know functional so um I, I i guess i've become pretty disinterested in the way the music industry functions and the way that artists are expected to release albums and then tour um i don't think the model's working right now and i'm much more interested in working primarily just in film because i think it's more interesting for a musician to be doing that um so other artworks yeah so literature and, and films really that's it i'm, I'm reading um salman rushdie's the satanic verses um i've always wanted to 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 get into rushdie i've always liked his his approach so yeah reading that and then also um video art and uh performance video performance and yeah i'm working with one artist elodie kipper on something but yeah so so that that's that's probably what I'd say, really. Not much else. So maybe now we should listen to one of your uh, compositions, which okay. is maybe Canto for Orchestra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, you know, is being recorded live. So This is a live recording. There are a few coughs, yeah, a few wrong yeah, notes. As I, well. love, I love them. We <laughs> 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 already discussed about <laughs> All right, let's have a listen.
That's nice. So what was the track for? What do you compose this for? It was my last piece that I did for my undergrad um, at Guildhall. So I wrote that three years ago now. And But it's pretty rare for a composer these days to get a chance to work with like 40 plus piece orchestra. But for me, that was always the only, <laughs> the main interest of being a composer was to work with orchestral forces. And it still is. So that's why I played it because um, when I had the chance to write for orchestra, I took it really seriously. And I thought, I'm gonna really try and write something because I might not get a chance to write for orchestra anytime soon. And actually I, I haven't. It's, it's a hard thing to, uh, to put together and it costs a lot of money. So the word canto in Italian, you'll know, it means song. And um, it, it's essentially a variation on a set of um, simple harmonies, a, a series of, of, of simple chords that then expands outwards and outwards and outwards. Um, and when I actually started writing it, it was tricky because I was writing another piece for orchestra that I thought was the one that I wanted to write and I followed this thing through for weeks and weeks and weeks and then I threw it away um, and I thought no, I want to write something simpler and something more direct and something more just to the point, everything we're talking about now and I think Luke you've picked up the reason why it's hanging in the air is because you've picked up on it and um Eventually, yeah, I did that. So, and what I always, yeah, go no, ahead. Well, I, for me, I always feel that you need to write about three or four things before you find the thing that you really want to write. Often, often when I'm trying to write a piece, I will write, I will start composing a, about three or four other pieces before and the actual thing emerges. And, and do you have a reference so for this music uh, from other collaborators? Or and you know, how how do you come up? What was? How did I come up with the mute, with with this idea? Yeah, yeah. We talk and we talk. We can talk about process a little, which mm. I think will be quite interesting <coughs> in the context of orchestral uh, compositions. Yeah, well, the, this was something where I was trying to to be a little bit explicitly Armenian, I suppose, <laughs> a, a tiny bit, uh, because I, I'd studied Armenian modality a lot so modal scales and then from those modal scales uh, getting chords and then from those chords coming up with chord sequences so the mode is suddenly in charge of the entire harmonic character of the work so in in this sense there was uh, something innately Armenian about the mode um, and then also you have composers like Khachaturian, the Armenian uh, Russian composer, and um, his type of florid melodies, they seem quite easy for me. They, they seem quite natural to me. This kind of folkloric 6-8, you know, this kind of like 6-8 rhythm, very like uh, dancing light rhythm, is very typically Armenian. Um, It's also in Greek music a lot as well. So that that was generally the idea for the piece, was to write something light, dance-like, but also coming from this Armenian modality. But you had your own freedom 
basically choose whatever you want. Oh yeah, I could, I could write whatever I wanted to. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to, if you were to distill down Armenian music and the Armenian sound. I suppose where is its uniqueness and sound coming from? A specific instrument, perhaps, or or mm. what is it that makes Armenian music Armenian to you? Um, there are the instruments which come out of the ground itself of Armenia. So the duduk, for example, comes from the apricot tree, which comes from Armenia. So that is from, literally, the sound is from the ground. The drums and the certain reeds, I don't know all the words, but there are specific instruments that just the folk music play, especially the mountain music, um, has different instruments. Uh, so the northern region, so they have different instruments because the terrain is different. Um, but I'd say that it doesn't have, I can say that it's not like Makam, and Makam is um, essentially Turkish and Arabic music, which has microtones. It's not, not like that. It has a simplicity about it that seems to kind of predate Makam. Makam, Arabic music and Turkish music is actually very complex, very sophisticated. Armenian music has a specific directness and um, ancient simplicity. It's almost like because the language is so old, the music is also just as old. And it has a primal, basic naivety that I find is very appealing. Yeah. That's nice. I was lucky enough to go to a world music festival in, it's, forgive the bouginess of this statement, uh, when I was in Borneo, randomly. But because it was in such a random place, there was a lot of random bands there and stuff, and a lot of random sounds and instruments. Yeah, amazing. And, and it was like tremendously energizing to hear it live in, in particular, and it made me kind of turn me off going to like normal festivals in the, totally. in, the in, in the way that we know them here in in, in london or in the, even something as cool as sonar or primavera even because it's not that engaging unfortunately anymore yeah there is something about live live when you hear wonderful live folk music it is the most activating thing mm. it's it's so energetic um yeah i i know exactly what you're talking about yeah I think it's time to listen to uh, 14 Fractures now. Cool.
so what was this piece of music for? So this was for a film that I just finished, which is a film that I wrote and directed a short. And the reason why I wanted you guys to play it is because as I was talking about before, as, uh, film being my main er area of interest as a composer, um, I think that if a composer is writing music for film, the, the music should be able to stand up by itself. And it gives the music a certain quality. Um, I would have never written that music if it wasn't for the images and the characters and the film. And so the, the film required a very light touch and a, a particular, a particular non-invasive approach. And it led me to do things with the string quartet that I hadn't ever written on down on paper myself. So I'd seen this and heard this kind of sound. I was thinking about composers such as uh, Morton Feldman or Howard Skempton. Um, Morton Feldman is very, uh, uh, very famous for these very glass, crystal-like texture textures for his strings. And Howard Skempton, British composer, very famous for a kind of naivety or simplicity of material. So that's kind of what I was, I was, I, I, I was trying to do, was something very simple, a childlike and simple. But I would have never written that if it wasn't for the film and the characters. Uh, I think it's an interesting piece when it's by itself without the text. So that was, yeah, that was what I wrote it for. So what would you say is your favorite job? You're a composer, a musician and a, and a filmmaker. What, what, what do you most identify as at the moment, I guess? Mm. I think all of it, I think it's just storytelling, storyteller. And even as a composer, I feel that composers are storytellers as well. Even the ones that aren't interested in making films. They're, they're storytellers of sound, storytellers of musical ideas. They take a theme and they tell the story of that theme. So ultimately, for me, it's all about storytelling. So in which moment do you, you think you need to switch between these kind of three forms? It was actually when I started with you, Luca, when we made our short together. That was when I started taking it seriously and when I realized I need to bring the images back into my life. And um, and I, I need to invest more in the storytelling of images as well as the storytelling of, of music. And And for me, it's all about not only storytelling, but drama, because composers can make dramatic music so if drama is available in the musical world and drama is available in the film world it's about being a, a dramatist so um, that was why I did my MA in opera I was interested in trying to to to, uh, to tackle the operatic form but as you know uh, Luca you're Italian the, the opera is it's everywhere in, in Italy, it's in the, in the culture and in the films as well, in Fellini. And, and uh, so opera is something that um, I, I think you, I'm always thinking about opera, even in film. And even though I'm not interested in making conventional opera, opera, because what opera does is it brings together a composer and the librettist or a scriptwriter essentially to make a story. 
that's mu a musical story. And then that inspired many filmmakers because of the dramatic scope of, of the opera, you know. That's interesting, actually. I wasn't really <laughs> that aware of, of this. but Because also in Italy, like, we do actually have opera, but it became kind of niche thing that is being constantly funded by the state to survive. So yeah, sadly, young, yeah. As young people, we don't we don't listen to it at all. And actually, when I actually f first moved in Ireland, um, the person I was working with, she loved opera, and you know, so I found more and more people uh, into that. So I never really actually connect the soundtracks with opera. So and actually, I would listen mm. better to our music. Yeah, well, I think maybe now now not so much, but definitely in the early twentieth century the the kind of italian middle class were probably i i think much more exposed to opera whereas now unfortunately there's more of a social divide and then in in the late 19th century that was like the the big moment for opera where composers like puccini were like the kind of film directors of today were were the big you know were the martin scorsese's of today as in they made commercial art that was smash hit box office sellout run uh kind of work for europe so th those operas were tour and also rossini as well his his comical his comic light opera would tour and uh it was a huge success you know it wasn't seen as a high art thing mm. how how much do you think opera um became ingrained in societies that had it at its core of which there's there's a few around the world there's a I guess I'm, I'm wondering, is there a performative, is the performative nature of of opera, um, the big gestures, let's say, I mean, the visually, sure. um, has 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 that seeped through? Do you think to other art forms in um, in countries like Italy? I mean, it, it mm. seems to, to me like it may have, and yeah. it's still there even if it's not popular. Um, I think that it's certainly seeped through into the into the the early like i don't know what do you call it new wave but people like pasolini fellini mm -hmm. uh those filmmakers were have explicitly said that they were influenced by the operas that they saw when they were children or when they were young and and i think opera yeah has influenced those italian filmmakers um and then operas also influence people like Herzog. I think it's influenced German culture in an interesting way, for better or worse, because, I mean, Wagner influenced Hitler. Uh, Hitler was outwardly influenced by Wagner's aesthetics. You know, the whole Nazi sting was inspired by Wagner. So you can't get away from that. But then now you have people like Werner Herzog reinterpreting Wagner. Um, that's just on my mind because I, I just watched, you know, uh, Wings of Desire and I was thinking about Wim Wenders. Um, sure. That's kind of an operatic film. You have Yeah, I would say Nick, so. You know, you have the Nick Cave performance. That's full on. That's operatic, I'd say. For me, I, I'm not so interested in, okay, you know, opera itself but what is operatic and what seems to reach that scale um 
but I, I guess only for me now, I guess only Italy and Germany are kind of obvious obvious ones that where it has had a big impact. Yeah, I mean, it exists in, in, in Russia, but I have I guess I personally, I don't think I've ever seen any evidence of it getting past the, the class of people that would go to the upper house. Uh, yeah, in terms of filmmakers, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe Eisenstein, potentially. <laughs> He was a theatre director as well, but not 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 in a big way. I don't think not in a major way. No. Okay. Um, are you exploring any themes at the moment? Is, is there any one theme, desire, or issue that's that is influencing you, or is that how you work? Even. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm working on a story right now, a script whereby if I finish the script, what I'm going to do is write the music, the score for the film before I've shot it. <laughs> it's just something to do to keep me busy for the next few months. Um, and, and that's about three women. That, that is it. Those are the only characters in the film. And um, I guess I've been interested in motherhood, the idea of motherhood, the idea of my own experience with, with motherhood and the mother's experience with that child and her experience to her grandmother, this kind of three chain. Um, that's been something I've been thinking about a lot. And how 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 you're living these days? Um, you know, these strange days we are mm. living at the moment. Yeah. Well, uh, right before lockdown happened, I was working on a job in Cardiff, so I was doing. I was an MD for a musical. Um, but it wasn't my musical I hadn't written the music but I was just rehearsing everyone putting it all together uh, and just as we were about to go we were in tech so we were rigging the show putting the show on its feet and just as we were about to open the show I, um, we, I, I, you know it got cancelled um, and then that, that was just crazy and so since then I've done a few things but I've basically been working on this script and then um, one thing that I've been doing for years, and I, I, I talk to my talk to people about it, is I'm I'm kind of a big Bitcoin crypto guy, crypto person, <laughs> and I, I trade I trade crypto, so I buy and sell Bitcoin, and um, that's always been a side like a side hustle, side hobby for me. But I I really got involved in Bitcoin because I thought the technology was super cool, and I'm a bit of a nerd. And so back in 2013, I got involved and then went to meetups and so buying and selling Bitcoin. And basically, since the lockdowns happened, because I've had more time, I've taken that more seriously. So I've been spending more time, <laughs> been spending more time trading Bitcoin. Um, so I, that's one thing I've been doing a bit more of. Yeah, I'm by you. I don't know how to make money from money. <laughs> yeah, well, this is this is making money from you know digital digital assets you know digital no i mean we don't always you know it, it's it's uh it's it's been a long-term obsession i guess addiction another addiction um but i i was never doing it really that seriously before last year so that's been keeping me occupied i guess yeah and uh well going back like um don't know if you want to talk about um, how much an opinion you have, but 
what do you think? Do you do you think the 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 government in the UK is doing enough? <laughs> We're gonna go into politics. Here we go. <laughs> well, it's not politics, but do you, yeah, it, it is politics because uh, well, even arts is politics at the end of the day, you know. Uh, but yeah, yeah, uh, on the way people approach art um, life, yeah, 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 um, yeah. But true. the situation on on you know, if, do you think arts and venues should get a kind of special treatment these days because it's it's looking kind of hard that they're going to reopen anytime soon uh, what do you how do you see the future yeah well i think that a lot of theaters are going to close down a lot of regional theaters are going to close and even the show i was working on was for the national in wales in cardiff and it was their big show of the year they'd spent i don't know how much but they were hoping for that show to be the big show of the year to bring in. I mean, they're a subsidized company there, but still, I think that we're going to have a lot of regional theaters close. And I think that those theaters won't reopen and we're going to see a massive drought for regional culture, which is really sad, really awful because for the last 10 15 years those regional theaters have been working so hard to get good work out into away from london out and now all that work's going to be undone and do i think that the government should should put out a leg i mean yeah i think they they should because if they can print i mean i'm talking about the if the federal reserve can print you know nine trillion dollars to 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 essentially prop up the markets I don't know exactly how much the the Bank of England have, have, have printed, but also there's been a huge amount of money. I understand that, but I think that the arts is, a, ha, is, is like a strong thing in this country and needs to be supported in the same way that the markets are supported. It is a market and people come here for this, for that. And so there needs to be some support. Otherwise it won't, it will not survive this. You, you'll only have uh, the biggest theatres, the biggest shows, the most commercial sort of awful stuff, um, bringing in the masses, that will be the only thing that will... Um, I mean, when I say awful stuff, I mean, Hamilton's great. You know what I mean. Just uh, n nothing that's that's really pushing the boundary, just something that's exa existing purely to, to make profit, which is fine. But you're not going to have risky work ever able to, to, to go on. And... Um, it's a problem on, on the long run in the sense you don't have an, uh, um, a long-term kind of re uh, renovation of in the in between the arts and I, I you know how I see like arts uh, venues like kind of and the, the the British culture kind of a big sh window shop where people feel attracted to come um, creatives and talents mm. from around the world why should i choose london to over something maybe it's cheaper and easier to live yeah um and it's kind of not you know the, i think yeah the, you're the gonna st it, that that will stop that wonderful thing that london had which was inviting all these creatives in and coming it's, it's not going to happen anymore you know it's soft power i mean it seems arts sure. is what gives the uk soft power and no matter what way you look at it, the influence has been on the decline for, for, for decades, but the world respects the UK for what it, what it gives gives everyone else in terms of art, uh, and it, it would be a pity if that's forgotten.
because it's I think commercially as well, you know, um, that's kind of important uh, to attract people and to show UK in a certain way. So I think uh, you know, you know we should, they should try to keep for for investments as well. You know, I think it it makes easier to to have investments where everybody is looking at. You know, people is looking at UK as the kind of leader on uh, on on culture in the world definitely especially in europe leader on culture in europe i mean and it's a whole ecosystem people don't realize how connected it is you know if if the cultures aren't if the cultural sector isn't thriving you know where are those guys that that do their nine to five you know if they're if they're they're not gonna be able to take their wife to the theater you know that wife that's into like that cool stuff whatever <laughs> they're not then it's all it's all it's all connected you know you can't just be this financial capital it doesn't work like that and it will have an impact into other sectors that that we're not we don't even realize how this stuff's connected um and I, i'm wondering also about the film industry and Pinewood and um, etc and how, how do you guys think that um, that that's going to be affected it's very hard to produce anything on a film set with social distancing that's for, for sure try as people want it's seems a bit it's anathema to efficient work anyway I think we can probably agree on that mm. I think it's more problematic for indie smaller productions if you have to go through the kind of insurance um, yeah. the pro- those pro- because we can find compromises artistically for how long this could last you know a couple of years or it could be seen it could be sooner actually you know uh, but um, I think the bigger production are going back to work at the moment um, who struggle is the indie ones. Uh, what the one thing they don't like, I was saying in Spain, that they increased the budgets to 10 million uh, as grants schemes for films, for indie films, from 3 million. So they, they kind of understand that they need to keep this type of, um, of smaller productions to keep them going as well. It's as important as big shows. Mm. In Spain, you said. Yeah, right. But it was months ago, you know. They they put this um, straight away. Right? And I see a, f- a Spanish friend as well. The kind of is on set already. But more for commercial stuff. Commercials are easier, you know, for sure. being set. Okay. Um, one last little quick question, I think, Richard. Uh, if you could live and work anywhere, uh, where might it be, and what? Why? Mm, can I choose a time as well <laughs> uh, just you know rewind five years or something like that I mean I think um, at the moment I'm really interested in in, in Far East Asia so I, I think I, I would love to live and work in Hong Kong um, because it's a part of the world that I haven't been to yet and I know little about and um, I love the cinema and uh the people, the people seem seem very beautiful. They're very great. Love to party and love to great nightlife. I'd love to go there. Yeah. Sounds like a good idea. So, so um, thanks, Richard. That was great. Great chat. Thank you. I appreciate Colin. your thanks time. So much. No, thanks, thanks, guys. I really appreciate 
you guys asking me out. Yeah. <laughs> it's been fun. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Okay. Ciao, man. All right. Bye. Ciao, ciao. That's all for today. Thanks for being with us. I hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to follow and subscribe. Ciao.